Jamie said, we're moving back into the book of Luke. And today we're starting in chapter 20, looking from verse 19. Uh, you'll find it on the, in the Blue Bibles on page 1054, or it'll be on the screen behind me. From verse 19. The teachers of the law and the chief priests look for ways to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and the authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like angels. They are God's children, since they are, God's, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it that the Messiah is the son of David? David declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow who put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Oh, well, thanks, Kelly, and thanks, Jamie. Good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to have you with us here today. 
Uh, If you ask one of our regulars what's Matt passionate about, I hope that amongst all the chicken wing jokes, uh, that those of you who know me would eventually give a serious answer that I love sharing who Jesus is with people. Uh, Our life series where people come for four weeks to check out Jesus is one of the favourite things I get to do in ministry. Also really love reading the Bible one-on-one and it's been uh, a joy seeing people find opportunity to do that this year and training them and giving them some encouragement to do so. And from time to time people at church say there's someone that they have who doesn't want to do any of that but they just want to catch up because they have a few questions. So I think, well, if someone's a, uh, who isn't a follower of Jesus wants to talk about him, I'm there. A few years back, I was introduced to a young guy, and we caught up here at the RSL, and he had many uh, questions. But after a while, the initially friendly facade dropped, and I sensed a little bit of underlying hostility. Yet he asked me how I became a Christian. So I launched into my testimony, 21-year-old and backpacker in Athens, lightning bolt, conviction of sin in a hotel room. And he interrupted me with a fair bit of heat behind the question and said, do you have anything to offer me other than intangible personal experience? At the level of kind of anger in the question left me feeling like I'd inadvertently kind of poked a bear, uh, generating a fair bit of tension in the room. He knew a lot of Christians that he liked and loved, and he'd heard their stories, yet he was looking for something sure and certain to hold on to beyond his friends' experiences that he could trust in. What do you think you would say in such a moment of tension? I offered to read through Luke's gospel with him, and I said I wanted to share with him the Jesus of history and that he might appreciate Luke's very upfront kind of way that he writes and compiles his way uh, uh, on um, recording Jesus' life for us. And up on screen, Esther, if you just want to pop it up there, I read the first four verses of Luke's Gospel. We read this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Luke is carefully recording eyewitness testimony, but more than that, showing how Jesus fulfilled and accomplished the salvation promised in the Old Testament scriptures, all with the goal of giving his readers certainty that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, bringing an offer of salvation to all nations. Today, uh, as a church, we return to Luke's Gospel after doing it in sections over the last few years, and we're picking up where we left off, and we'll stay with Luke now, and we'll finish it in the run-in to Easter. So as we jump back in, I think it's great to have Luke's very clear agenda to bring certainty to us about who Jesus is, to have that kind of front of mind as we dive back in. So if you're exploring who Jesus is, a really warm welcome to you. And I want to say up front that we'd love to help you see that a commitment to factual evidence, history, intellectual honesty is a good thing 
And you can find satisfying answers and evidence of Jesus being is exactly who he says he is. And because Jesus is who he says he is, you'll also find people of all walks of life who live with conviction and purpose and who can tell you stories of their own personal life-changing experience of their encounter with Jesus. Having a deep personal experience full of joy, tears, hopes and trials that come from being bound to Jesus for all time. And for the follower of Jesus here today, which is most of us, long time or short, being reminded about and strengthened in the certainty we have about who Jesus is, bringing joy, it reminds us of the deep privilege of knowing him. Keeping us humble, giving us perspective and clear on our purpose as Christians when life is going really well, or as we've sung about in our second song today, keeping us kind of clinging to him in the times where we feel the struggle and pain of life. It connects us to the only person who will never let us down, Jesus, who has both the power and the heart to walk with us. So let's get to it. It'd be great to have today's reading open in front of you. Uh, It's on page 1054 on your blue Bibles if you haven't picked it up yet. But while you open it up, let me orient us quickly into the very tense moment, kind of the cliffhanger season finale where we left things in our last section of Luke's Gospel. Back in chapter 19, verse 28, this kind of final phase of Jesus' earthly ministry is signaled to us that he's now heading to Jerusalem. And as he approaches, riding on a colt, people are throwing their cloaks down on the ground uh, and using one of the great kingly messianic psalms, kind of declaring and openly acknowledging to the city that they think Jesus is the promised one who has come, the Messiah King, come to bring peace. Jesus then weeps over Jerusalem and prophesies of its coming judgment as enemies will come and destroy it as they didn't recognize the time of God's coming to them. It's back in chapter 19, verse 44, if you're taking notes. Jesus then enters the temple, overturning tables, driving out those who traded there, greatly upsetting the religious establishment. Yet what probably upset them more is that the common people hung on Jesus' words. So there's an enormous tension here between the Jewish leaders who question Jesus' authority to do such things, to kind of proceed into the city and act in such a way. So Jesus then tells a very pointed parable aimed squarely at the Jewish religious establishment, essentially declaring them wicked servants of God's people who would feel the full wrath of God. So there's a way to kind of win friends and influence people, like it really turned up the tension in the city. And so you now get, when we come to today's reading, verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere and they hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the scene is set. And they lay a well-baited trap before Jesus regarding paying taxes to Caesar. 
Because if Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes, they knew he would lose the kind of good standing with the people who deeply resented the Roman rule. But if he says, no, don't pay your taxes, they could report it to the Romans and have him arrested and punished. So Jesus takes a denarius, a coin worth about a day's wages, and asks them whose image and inscription is on it. Caesar's, they reply. He said to them, verse 25, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Which of course diffuses any political tension with the Romans. He's avoided kind of that clearly, uh, cleverly baited trap. But it leaves in the air a much more challenging proposition for the Jews then and every follower of Jesus now that we are to give back to God what is God's. If a denarius has Caesar's image on it, give it back to him. If you as a human are made in God's image, give your life back to him. When questioned on the greatest commandment, for example, in a different setting, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. It's that wholehearted giving of ourselves to God which is what the Jews had always been taught. Jesus kind of echoes the great preachers and prophets of the Old Testament like Moses, who in his you know, ripping farewell sermon series recorded for us in Deuteronomy says this, and we'll pop it on screen, Esther would be great, it comes from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 12 to 13. And Moses says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Pretty kind of wholehearted call to discipleship there. So as Jesus kind of echoes these words, this idea of uh, people devoted to God giving their lives to him is well established. So Jesus not only avoids the trap, but as he does so, issues a call, or sort of reissues the call, to a radical whole-of-life commitment to God. In our second story then from Luke, we see Jesus not only uh, facing opposition from the teachers of the law and the chief priests, but the Sadducees as well, who were kind of a religious political party made up of sort of wealthy uh, aristocratic types, They were fairly self-centred and therefore not popular with regular folk. But they also denied the supernatural, including the idea of resurrection, and acknowledged only the first five books of the Old Testament. The Sadducees, who, verse 27, say there is no resurrection, think they've come up with a conundrum for Jesus to show him and the crowds just how foolish he is and this whole idea of resurrection. What if someone married and widowed seven times, um, uh, you know, arrives before God in this resurrection you talk about? Who are they married to? And Jesus says, well, actually there's no marriage in heaven, so what you think is a clever question kind of falls at the first hurdle. Then Jesus takes it a step further, and given the Sadducees loved and revered the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch as it's called, he says, well, let's go there then drawing from Moses, who they revered. Verse 37, Jesus says, But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. If 
For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for in him all are alive. And Jesus is saying you should believe in the resurrection if you believe in uh, Moses, because Moses did, as he referred to God as the God present tense of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who have long since died. This is Jesus basing one of his arguments uh, on the very specific kind of you know, tense of a verb in an Old Testament uh, passage here, which is one, as a bit of a side note, is one of the many reasons we as a church hold a very high view of all of the Bible as God's word. Because if Jesus is prepared to make an argument on the specific grammar of the present tense of a verb from words recorded centuries ago, we want to have a very similar view of, well, sorry, the same view of the Old Testament uh, as Jesus did. We're in pretty good company there. But returning back to Luke's purpose, he's trying to bring certainty to the first readers of this account of Jesus' life. So questions kind of front of mind for the first readers would have included the question of why was Jesus rejected so fiercely by the religious establishment who conspired and had him executed? Just these two stories kind of illustrate that fairly well, that he ran rings around them in the public sphere, sidestepping their clever traps and quite ridiculous at points questioning of him and he exposed them and the kind of frauds that they were. Given Jesus has earlier in our chapter declared a great parable of judgment uh, upon the sort of religious establishment, we have these two interactions to show that Jesus' condemnation of them and declaration of judgment was entirely just. Go back a a chapter again where we left off last time. If uh, you're reading Luke's Gospel towards the end of the first century wondering why God, if he's so great, has allowed his kind of capital, Jerusalem, to be completely, well, pretty much destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. Well, you'll get from chapter 19 that Jesus said this would happen as an act of judgment against the religious elite of the day who did not recognise Jesus as God coming to them. Luke is carefully recording things and ordering his stories to bring certainty to the reader about who Jesus is. And to zoom out to the big picture of Luke's Gospel, it offers something very tangible that we can build our certainty about Jesus on. The logic I put to the young man in my office that day was essentially this, that the Old Testament speaks very clearly and repeatedly and describes the coming of this Messiah... And we can prove through historical investigation and reason that it wasn't changed retrospectively. Jesus' life was witnessed by thousands of people and Luke wrote his gospel while they were still alive and could have refuted it from the best sources of the day. And Luke very carefully shows how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah with an astounding level of detail. He explains the political and historical environment of the day like he has in today's reading in a way that just helps you make perfect sense of why at the same time so many were drawn to his teaching and why it it enraged the religious elite enough for them to have him killed. And we can also show that what Luke wrote then is what we're reading today and that hasn't been amped up over time. 
So then we're really able to wrestle with great kind of intellectual honesty and integrity with Jesus' words and kind of feel the full force of Luke's arguments and evaluate on, can we be certain about who Jesus is? And as the objection comes, as it did that day in my office, how can we know the eyewitness testimony about Jesus is true? I said to him, well, that's kind of the basis of how we discern things all the time. We have, you know, in a court case, we have eyewitnesses. We not only listen to what they say, but we assess the veracity of their witness. Are they trustworthy? Is there corroborating evidence? Does what they're saying explain the facts of history? And then we can make a judgment call on whether we believe on is there enough evidence beyond a reasonable doubt on what we're assessing. So I think, and I put it to this young man, I think if you're committed to the intellectual honesty and academic view of history as you say you are, you have to engage with the teachings of Jesus and the facts of his life, death and well-evidenced resurrection. And if he is who he says he is, he places a call on our lives that we're to give it all back to God. And we can do so with joy and great hope, knowing that as we've heard today, there is a great resurrection life to come, free of every sadness and every bit of brokenness in our world, full of joy and relationship with God and relationships with his people that will never end. But who exactly does Jesus claim to be? As Jesus only kind of progressively reveals this through his life and ministry, slowly becoming more explicit about his divinity, which is where our next story from Luke comes in. After receiving the kind of nice one Jesus from some of the teachers of the law after running running rings around the very unpopular Sadducees, he leaves a real, you know, thinker, a real thought provoker for the teachers of the law who had just kind of applauded his last argument. The fact that Jesus' disciples claimed he was the long-promised Messiah was kind of well known at this point. The the Messianic psalm shouted with joy by his disciples as he rode the colt into town as they laid their cloaks down before him. Kind of gave that one away. So Jesus dives back into a psalm, Psalm 110, with the teachers of the law making yet another argument with them over fine points of grammar. Look at verse 42 with me. David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, making kind of quite a careful point that if the Lord Yahweh, God said to my Lord, another divine being, there's two of them there, very easy to read over these things, but just slow down and and think through it carefully. If David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, if David calls him Lord, then how can he be his son? Everyone acknowledged that this Messiah would be a son of David. Jesus kind of leaves that one hanging there. He's making two points. Firstly, that the Messiah was always going to be divine. God come to visit his people. And it was always going to be that way. But secondly, he's taking it a step further and saying, you know, for the crowds who are kind of assessing and trying to make up their mind about Jesus, that if he is the Messiah, this divine one, God come to earth as a man, then it's very unwise to stand against him, to rebel against him. 
as God will make his enemies his footstool. Then Jesus turns to the crowds who are listening to all of this and addresses them and makes very plain that the false religion and teachers of the law is a self-centered sham that will be punished most severely. Then at that very moment, Jesus looks up at the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury and then to a poor widow who put in two very small coins. Now, for perspective, if a denarius kind of held up by Jesus moments earlier was worth around about a day's wages, these two coins in the currency of the day were 128th of a denarius. Very small. Two of them you'd earn about in about 10 minutes' work. So, you know, if you say a $5 note, you're kind of roughly there. Now, $5 is not much for most people. But if it's all you had to live on, you realise the depth of this extraordinary sacrifice. It's an illustration of someone genuinely and wholeheartedly devoted to God, giving everything back to him. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Amongst all the hypocrisy, the politics, the power plays, there is someone who is devoted to God and who knows him well enough to know she can trust him to provide for her. There are firm intellectual, historical, factual reasons to believe Jesus is who he says he is. They are important and they're good to grow in your certainty of. But also in Jesus' day and ours, we should expect to find real people who, without any pretense, are humbly, wholeheartedly devoted to God and you can see it in the way they live and just how much they trust God. As evidence to people investigating who Jesus is that you would expect to find if it's all true. So the personal experience this person in my office reacting against, maybe I just started in the wrong spot for him. I think both of those things need to happen and both are important. Genuine, thoughtful, intellectual, rigorous evidence for who Jesus is and also the evidence of a whole range of people whose lives have been utterly transformed by coming to know him. Sadly, you can find ample examples of the same false religion, power plays, abuse, hypocrisy in our day as it was to find them in Jesus' day. But I'd say to you, amidst it all, you'll find many times more devoted followers of Jesus, humbly and lovingly seeking to obey his commands, seeking to live our lives for God's glory, giving to God what is God's. So if you're investigating who Jesus is, I'd say do two things. Exercise your mind and intellect and apply them to a gospel like Luke's. It'd be great for you to be with us for the rest of the term as we do so. But also, take the time to get to know us as a church family. We're a pretty regular group of people, imperfect, prone to flaws and weaknesses like us all. Yet growing in our genuine certainty of who Jesus is and our acts of devotion that flow from it. 
And for the follower of Christ, long time or short, whether you're a a youth thinking, do I want to take on the faith of uh, my parents and make this for my own, or um, you might have been following Jesus for a long time, it is a great thing to continue to study God's word carefully and grow in your certainty of the things that you believe. And as we all swing back into gear, as the school year starts, summer moves to autumn, think through how in 2022 for you, you can show your genuine devotion to Christ. Giving God what is God's in your life. I totally get that we can't all be Malcolm and Ainsley's and move to South America as missionaries, as our act of devotion. Last Sunday was a great Sunday to be with us, and uh, I know all who were there really enjoyed it. If you missed sermon, for example, it's up on the website, absolute cracker from Cam, wonderful day in our life together. But for most of us, by the time you work, look after family, pay the bills, do the shopping, um, our time can feel very squeezed. And of course, we do all our relationships and work with a God-centered perspective for his glory. But I would encourage you in those moments that you get each week, whether it be an hour, three, five or ten, where you get to do formal or informal acts of serving Jesus amongst his people and seeking to share who Jesus is, However long you get, pray to God and say, please help me to do this with wholehearted devotion to bring glory to you and to testify to the world that Jesus really is who he says he is. It could be as you prepare to pray for church on a Sunday or cook a meal for someone or follow up a brother and sister in Christ who needs help or serve on a team. And, you know, we're planning a church, God willing, in a couple of weeks. There'll be plenty of opportunities to show your devotion to Jesus. But whatever it is, remind yourself of the joy and trust we express in Jesus as we forgo other things we could do with that time and use it to serve him as an expression of our wholehearted wholehearted devotion to the Jesus in whom we trust. Let me close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the power and authority of Jesus' words. We thank you for the way he uh, very clearly uh, runs rings around those who are false and expresses what is true uh, about you. Uh, We thank you for the slow and careful way Jesus reveals his divinity across his earthly life and ministry. And we thank you that we can look back and see that Uh, Jesus, both fully God and fully man, is the one who went to the cross for us, to die for our sins, to reconcile us to you, so that hundreds of millions, billions of people across time and across your world might experience the truth of his claims on our life uh, and also experience the joy of trusting in him and of knowing that we are reconciled uh, to you Father, Son, and Spirit, to live our whole lives for your glory. Please enable us as a church uh, to humbly and lovingly show our wholehearted devotion to you in a whole range of ways in the year to come for your glory and honour 
uh, for the blessing of your people and for the sake of our, uh, the mission you have given us to share who Jesus is with your world. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.